Hello, I'm Sean Murray and this is The Conversation, where we take an alternative look at political events and current affairs through an Irish lens. In this show, we hope to pick, probe, investigate and uncover the stories that you want to hear. We go where mainstream won't go. This week, we look at preparations for constitutional change in Ireland. While some would rather bury their head in the sand, others have been taking a more practical measure in preparing for Irish reunification. My next guest is an esteemed professor of human rights law and commissioner on the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission. He has published widely on human rights and constitutional law and has written extensively on constitutionalism and human rights for the media. But before we speak to our next guest, let's get a quick overview on this week's topic. As always, we are joined by our resident co-presenter, Michelle Gildernew. Michelle is the current MP for Fermanagh South Tyrone. She has served in the Northern Ireland Assembly as a former Minister for Agriculture and Rural Development and chairperson of the Health Committee, amongst other things. Michelle has been a Sinn Féin activist since her teens and has been elected almost continuously since 1998. And today's guest is Professor Colin Harvey. Mr Harvey is Professor of Human Rights Law in the School of Law, Director of the Human Rights Centre, a fellow at the George Mitchell Institute for Global Peace, Security and Justice and an Associate Fellow of the Institute of Irish Studies. He is also a Commissioner on the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission. Colin Harvey, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Sean and Michelle. I'm really delighted to be here and appreciate the invitation. So, Colin, can you tell me a bit about your childhood growing up in Derry? Okay, well, I suppose I was born in 1970, so it gives you some sense of, of my age, over 50. And now, and people talk about the Good Friday Agreement and being Good Friday Agreement babies, but I suppose in some ways I'm a, I'm a conflict baby. But in some senses, that experience of growing up in Derry in the 70s and 80s has really shaped everything I've done since then, really. So, Colin, did you always have an interest in law, or was that something that came later in your studies? Michelle, it's a, it's a really good question, you know, because. Uh, you know, my background, I started off very driven by small p politics, you know, and questions around equality and rights. And when I started university, really, I thought politics was what I wanted to, to be involved in. I sort of switched into to law, really, but after my degree, you know, I did a PhD and I've ended up really in academic life, 
doing a, a lot of research and teaching in the area of human rights law. But I suppose ultimately my thinking is, although my background is law and academic law, that that, that initial sense that, that what changes the world, you know, what, what works in terms of mobilization is, is politics really. Mm sort of civic and political activism. Law is important and has a role in all that, particularly in the service of those wider goals. But ultimately, I think what changes the world is, is politics. And, and you know, as, as part of your academic work, um, you've, you've, also, you've also been a, an ardent campaigner for Irish reunification. I mean, why, is, why is that important to you? I think, you know, maybe to start, I started off working with on issues around refugee rights, the rights of, of asylum seekers. And it's maybe to go back to the, the background in, in Derry. Like I was thinking of maybe getting over 50 and getting a bit older, you're thinking about what, what has motivated you to do what you've done. And I suppose throughout my life, I've always tried to, to, to stand with and be with marginalised, disadvantaged and vulnerable communities. And to, to my mind, the question about constitutional change unity on this, this island is very much c connected to that, very much shaped actually by my, my mother who's unfortunately no longer with us, but like, she had a real sense in Derry, she's McCafferty from Derry of being really a second class citizen mm -hmm. in, her own, in her own city, of humiliation, of a denial of the dignity, and I suppose that sense in which never really wanted that to happen again and I think for not just for me but for many of us are really driven by that sense of of this place what it, what it has actually done to people um, so there's the basic injustice I think of of partition and division on the island but the sense also that that division has held this place back mm -hmm. like the north is the bottom of every league table that you want to look at. In fact, it's the bottom of it so often it should be out of the league at this point in terms of particularly socioeconomic issues. So the sense in which, yes, there's a basic injustice here in what has happened on this island, but also that we'd be better off, everyone really would be better off in different arrangements, that the arrangements here have actually held this place back. And I think that's particularly notable in the Northwest, not just in Derry, but the entire Northwest you know, you look at what's happened in terms of the development of the island and division, separation on the island has really held everyone back. Mm -hmm. So I think that's been a, a driving motivation. And rather seeing that, rather than seeing that as separate from the equality and human rights work that I've done, I see it as sort of an intrinsic part of it. You know, it's part of the same conversation. How do we make the lives of everyone on the island better? And I've reached a very clear conclusion on that in terms of the way forward. Absolutely, Colin. When you look at the entire Northwest and see how partition has failed counties like Donegal, Sligo and Leitrim, um, you can see that it, it has worked against everybody. But central to your calls for engagement on the issues, the relationship between the Good Friday Agreement and how it's embedded in international law, do you think the British government see this as a problem? When we talk about the Good Friday Agreement, 25 years on, Yes, that's a political agreement, but it's also binding international law as well. And we all know, and I don't need to tell either of you about the British government's track record in terms of international agreements going back a long, long way in history. But I think we can't really let them off the hook. Yeah, These are legal obligations 
These are hard-won legal rights, particularly the right to self-determination and that agreement. So I think we have to hold them to it. You know, people here have a choice about the future. In a post-Brexit scenario, to my mind, you know, I'm basically fed up of turning on and then turning off the radio and listening to, you know, to people talk about the principle of consent, to people talking about this idea of choice but never been asked the question. So I think now it's beginning to feel to me real, like that this island is on a trajectory towards, you know, the, a border poll, the referendums and the agreement. So what we really need British government to do, whether the current one or a future one, is to respect the agreement. Mm -hmm. And that agreement is quite clear. The choice is for the people of this island. So I just don't want to talk about the constitutional question. I want to be asked the constitutional question and I want to know the consequences of the answer to that and that's where the work now is and to my mind it's entirely plausible that, that we'll be asked the question this decade but we have to keep holding the British government to these international commitments we can't let, let them off the hook and that's why to me the international law component really matters both on these islands and internationally too we've got a lot of friends around the world who understand that. Colin, you wrote an academic piece called Making the Case for Irish Unity in the EU. Why is that relationship important? Well, thanks, Sean. And first of all, just to contextualise the, the, the research report, really, it was this, the second research report. first one was done in 2019 on planning and preparing for constitutional change in, in Ireland at the EU and Irish Unity. There's really a follow-up report from last year on making the case for change in the European Union. Uh, they're both written with my colleague Mark Bassett, a barrister uh, here. And essentially it's about getting the EU involved in the discussion about Irish unity. One of the implications of Brexit, this place was taken out of the EU against the wishes of people here. There's an automatic and guaranteed way back to the European Union by the Good Friday Agreement. In April 2017, the European Council made clear that that would be the, the case. What we've tried to do is work on the details of all that, just the mechanics of it, how it would work, and to make the case across the European uh, Union. I think what was fascinating to, to, to my mind around both those reports, and as you both know, they, they attracted quite a lot of attention, let's say, in terms of that work. Often there's a focus on the logo in the report, but not what was in the actual detailed reports themselves with the footnotes and everything else. So it was really about making a contribution to the preparatory work that is really getting more and more focused as the weeks and months go on. Mm -hmm. So do you think then, um, Professor, does the United yeah. States have a greater role to play? It's a great question. We just talked about the European Union and the US also has a clear role. There are many, many friends of Ireland. This will be a good news story mm -hmm. around the world. And I think it'll be essential, particularly around encouraging the British government to take the next step in relation to this. Because one real difficulty and dilemma is, you know, in the Good Friday Agreement, they have a, an important sort of triggering role around the referendum in the North. And I don't think they'll do that without determined international focus and pressure. We've seen, just to, just to stay on that, we have seen a number of statements coming from the US of attempting to hold Britain's feet to the fire regarding trade deals, etc. Have you seen any of that played out, or is this just rhetoric coming from the United States? I think it's absolutely vital. You know, the, the, the Brexiteers put a lot of emphasis on a trade deal with the US. We know the extent to which, particularly the current Tory party, that money talks in relation to that party. So, 
you know, again, friends of Ireland, people who want to ensure that the Good Friday Agreement is respected. And I think that's important to underline. You know, in a sense, what we're, what we're trying to say to any British government, this is our call. People on the island of Ireland make this decision. You, you are not to get in the way of us making that call. So you're trying to get the British government to, to essentially be ultimately enablers and facilitators for a decision that we will make and to get out of our way. So anybody can help with that. And I think the US, the EU, they have enormous power. You know, they, let's be candid uh, and to be slightly crude about it, they can really, really make the British state hurt, you know, in economic and other ways. So uh, I think any government would be silly not to listen to that. And I think it's definitely had an impact. And one of the great counter arguments that we hear uh, around reunification would be the economic argument. I mean, just for the audience's sake, is there an argument there? Well, first of all, I'm an academic lawyer, you know, and, and thinking about my disciplinary context, but I'll tell you what, I did A-level economics. <laughs> and so uh, that's my uh, basis for commenting in relation to this. Look, I, you know, I said earlier, the, the North economically, socioeconomically, is at the bottom of all the league tables you don't want to be at the bottom of. Um, so the current arrangements aren't working, they're dysfunctional. One of the essential things that's been happening recently is a lot of myth busting, right? So a lot of really useful work about what's happening on the island economically and the realities. And the reality is that economically, across the board, people will be uh, better off in new arrangements. Mm -hmm. You know, whether you're looking at life expectancy, whether you're looking at educational attainment, whether you're looking at basic key socioeconomic indicators, it seems fairly clear that all the evidence is stacking up to support the case for, for meaningful change. Now, I'm not an economist, but final point on that, you know, the, the island as an economic unit has been held back mm -hmm. by the border. That's exacerbated by Brexit. Now, the Windsor framework is really important. It does provide opportunities, but the Windsor framework is still mitigation only. You know, there is no really replacement for full EU membership in terms of the economic potentials of that. Now, I also, you know, I a big believer in building human rights and equality into that discussion. And part of what we're talking about at the moment is, you know, it just won't be, you know, a tweak. It won't just be absorbing the North. You know, many of us are involved in this discussion because we genuinely want a new Ireland. You know, we, we want that all island health system that's accessible to all and works. You know, look at the North at the moment. Like, the system is falling apart. You know, we want to do better for everyone. So even if people in the North vote against the United Ireland, if people in loyalist and unionist communities vote against the United Ireland, you know, the promise and the guarantee to people is you would be better off in these arrangements. The current system is not working for you and this will be a better future for everyone here. And that is bound to resonate and I know the yeah. life expectancy one yeah. is, as a mother, yeah. is the yeah. one that, that bothers me the yeah. most, but yeah. um, we have a really yeah. once in a lifetime opportunity yeah. to create a new, yeah. a whole new society yeah. and a new, new frameworks and yeah. I think a lot of our unionist neighbours yeah. want to be involved in yeah. that too. Yeah. But moving on a wee bit, yeah. Colin, I've been in meetings with you where yeah. you've been, yeah. the vilification has been piled on yeah. and you've been at the centre yeah. of a, a pretty nasty hate campaign on social media and elsewhere um, on your public advocacy for yeah. reunification. Yeah. Can you tell us more about that, please? It's a, it's a, it's a good, good question. Don't want to over 
emphasize my situation because in a sense, like it's not news, you know what I mean? It's always been the case here. Uh, but I remember back to, I think it was 2018, although my memories going at this point, and I spoke at a panel, actually the Sinn Féin Ardesh on Brexit. Uh, and I just, myself, I'd made my mind up really that it was going to be much more publicly engaged on the unity question. And I remember somebody took me aside and said quite quietly, you know, they'll get you back for that. And I wondered, who are they in terms of, the, of doing this, you know? So in 2019 onwards, I've, I found out who the they were, you know, because in a sense, there was a lot of, of pushback. There's been a backlash. It's been horrible, but some of it is not new and it's not personal. Like the, people are trying to send a message through a number of us, aren't they? And they're trying to say, don't do what Colin Harvey does. Um, because you know, I've been a head of the law school at Queen's. I've served on the Senate at Queen's. I've been a human rights commissioner here. I'm on the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission now. And a lot of the vitriol, which at times has been unnerving, uh, is about sending a message to other people. And what I would say to people is the more people that come and join the conversation or this conversation, the better, because that sends us the strongest possible signal that we're on that trajectory that, that I've mentioned. And I suppose a final point on this, you know, some of it, like I've talked about the sort of the tactical use of extremist rhetoric, right, around the, the protocol and the Windsor framework. A lot of it is hot air and noise from marginal figures, really. And what they want is, they want you fighting little battles here, there and everywhere. And what I would say to that is, there's an element of rising above that just of keeping focus on what the end game is. A lot of it is horrible, it's unpleasant, it's, it's not nice, but it, but it ain't new in this jurisdiction. It's been a lot, lot worse for people in the past. And I think it's a signal really that ultimately those involved in this conversation are winning the arguments and that we're on that trajectory and it is clearly unnerving some people. You're still tuned into The Conversation, your weekly alternative probe of political events and current affairs through an Irish lens. I'm joined by my co-host, Michelle Gildernew, alongside our special guest, Professor of Law, Colin Harvey. Colin, getting back to the practicalities of reunification, uh, how do you see this panning out? Well, the first thing that we need to stop and commend everybody involved in the discussion for is the fact that in the face of the, you know, really, really outrageous uh, provocation from Westminster over an extended period of time, uh, those involved in this discussion have kept focused on planning and preparing properly. I think I wake up at about three in the morning now talking about planning and preparing properly for constitutional change. But it's deliberate, you know, because we live here. We know what the conflict here involved um, and we don't want a repeat of that. We want to bring as many people as possible with us to this, the better place that we genuinely mean and that we are we're promising. So. I think ultimately what we've been doing is doing a lot of really boring, tedious, it's like those reports, you know, spelling out the practicalities of what we need to do in terms of the process of getting a referendum or getting concurrent referendums or a border poll on the island of Ireland. And then I think we've been largely successful in mainstreaming that discussion. Like, and it was interesting, even the opening to this program talked about, uh, you know, mainstream discussions like my sense is now this has become like a mainstream conversation that isn't an accident like part of the strategy really of Ireland's future and other work that I and others have been involved in is about making sure that you wake up every morning and you're hearing about United Ireland 
But Sean, you know, your good question, we're heading now into, well, what does that actually uh, look like? And I think what's really also commendable about that is the focus is on people. You know, a lot of the initiatives and proposals are around citizens' assemblies, civic participation. People like myself are involved in the discussion because we want to transform the island. And when we talk about a new Ireland, we, we mean that. So like, I would like to see proposals that are as ambitious as possible, particularly in the area of human rights and equality. But it's good to see the focus on participation and engagement, to listen to what people actually want. So you don't, in a sense, just put a blueprint on the table and say, there you go, that's what it is. You ask people what you would like to see. And I think the focus on inclusion as well in the North, making sure we're hearing a wide range of voices is essential to that. But I think that's now where we're at. And I think that framework, time frame of this decade is helpful in focusing minds because it, it is beginning to feel very, very real. And do you think the current Dublin government are doing enough to plan and prepare? No, they're, they're clearly not facing into this task in the way that they should be. They have, however, undertaken a number of very useful initiatives. You know, the shared island, initiative could be much more ambitious but it's doing useful and helpful work but they need to face into the task it's there it's in the good friday agreement it's in the irish constitution there are beginnings the beginnings of signs that they are doing that you know recently as a board member of ireland's future we met with atisha leo bradker it was interesting to hear his comments about the island being on a path to unification. So, you know, are we beginning to see a recognition that that's where this is going? The impact of, like, let's name it, Sinn Féin in the, the discussion, you know, Sinn Féin's success both north and south really as a political party is focusing minds, particularly around the, the southern election, you know, the, the, the possibility that there'll be a Sinn Féin-led government in the South is uh, making people think a lot harder than perhaps they were doing in the past around this. Now, Colin, due to your profile over this last number of years, it's something that always had, had come up when I'd, when I'd thought about it. Uh, I'm, I'm not hearing any whispers, yeah. but yeah. Is, does politics interest you? Is that something that you might consider in the future? Um, well, starting point for me is that I'm involved in Ireland's future, you know, discussion on the board there. And I think a role that we have that's absolutely vital is around building a broad and deep coalition for constitutional change, both civically and politically. So I think that's where my focus is at the moment and where it's likely to be for the foreseeable future in that, you know, what we can do as a determinedly civil society organization is that we can try to bring a range of people around the table to promote this and to make sure that it happens and that where people agree with each other on these questions, that they're prepared to say that, and that includes political parties. So I think one useful function that I and others can have is to try and bring the parties, civil society together around that with my civic hat on. But I am convinced, and just revisiting what I said earlier about law and politics, law is vital, right? And absolutely essential, particularly in the area of quality and rights. But what changes society is is politics, you know. So, Colin, we want to thank you for coming in today. It's always great to see you, and we want to wish you all the best for the future. Okay, thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks, Adelia. This week, we take a look at Britain's use of rubber and plastic bullets and the legacy of their deployment in the north of Ireland. Why were so many of the casualties children, and what can be done to ban this very lethal weapon from ever being used again? The firing of plastic and rubber bullets in Ireland was almost wholly unaccountable. From the procurement of ammunition, 
which was knowingly faulty to the killing of innocent men, women and children. No one has ever been held to account for any of the 17 people killed by plastic and rubber bullets, and no liability has ever been publicly admitted to by the security forces responsible. Instead, the state has pursued a policy of criminalisation, intimidation and endless private out-of-court settlements to evade legal scrutiny of their actions. Out of 17 of those killed from rubber and plastic bullets, 8 of those were children. Evidence of doctored bullets by members of the British Army were also commonplace. In April 1972, Paddy Devlin, MP, made investigations into this issue after the death of the first victim of the rubber bullet, 11-year-old Francis Rowntree, and found evidence of the bullets fired at him being hacked in half with torch batteries inserted into them. A former British Army officer, Michael Yardley, also recorded evidence of this type and wrote in the New Statesman, I have heard soldiers who serve in Northern Ireland boast that they have put broken razor blades or nails into rubber bullets to make sure they hurt someone. In September this year, the family of 14-year-old Julie Livingstone, who was hit in the head as she walked towards her home, have told that a file into her death remains locked away until 2064. The round was fired from a British Army vehicle. The files into Julie's death are accessible a year before files into disgraced Prince Andrew can be opened in 2065. And that does it for another week. We'd love for you to join the conversation by sharing the link to today's programme to help us grow our audience across all our social media platforms. I'd like to thank our special guest, Professor Colin Harvey, and our resident co-host, Michelle Gildernew. In the meantime, the conversation will be back next week with more investigations and analysis. I'm Sean Murray. Bye for now.